Hello, I'm Jenny Stevenson, host of the Survivor's Guide to Life podcast. Today I'm going to start with a quote. Uh, when we speak of trauma, it is usually something to be avoided at all costs. But the suffering that war brings can be a strange and terrible blessing. And that is a quote from Phil Clay, who is a U.S. Marine veteran of the war in Iraq. He's also an award-winning uh, writer for his 2014 collection of stories called Redeployment. Uh, what I'm reading from is a, a recent article in the New York Times uh, that Phil wrote, and it's called, Can the Trauma of War Lead to Growth Despite the Scars? You may be wondering why we're talking about war today, particularly, uh, but I believe, I think we both believe, that there, in some ways our fight against COVID-19 is almost like a war. We are, are fighting for our health, our financial uh, stability, uh, for the fabric almost of our society in some ways. And so I think this is very appropriate for our discussion today. And so having said that, I will say again hello and welcome to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. I'm Jenny Stevenson, your host, joining me is Dr. Peter Bernstein, or Peter, as he likes to be called. Uh, Peter is a coach and mentor with almost 50 years of experience helping people in the field of trauma recovery. Our podcast provides practical information and skills for resilience and personal growth during challenging times. And above all, we want to inspire our listeners to find hope, courage, and strength to succeed and move forward in times of adversity. That's it. I shortened it because it was too long. No, it's good. It's I think good. it, you know, let's let's get on to the good stuff. It is the good stuff. And you know, she mentioned an article I, I am taking with this article myself. Uh, and we're not talking specifically only about war, but we certainly have worked with veterans. We worked with Navy SEALs, Marines, and our in the nonprofit uh, and their families. Um, and, and we learned a lot. We learned an awful lot about trauma. We learned about and I think one of the things that I came to, uh, and I know many of the people in the Navy SEALs did too, was that instead of looking at post-traumatic stress as a psychiatric disorder, which I frankly had trouble swallowing many times. I think you've always had that. Yeah. I look at it as moral injury. We call it a bankruptcy of the soul, um, but it's called actually clinically a moral injury. And um, anybody who's subjected to the kinds of terror and horrors that that, that soldiers and veterans are, will come out definitely impacted and will have post-traumatic stress. Uh, I think in my father's day in World War II, they called it shell shock. Um, and I found out later after my father died, uh, he never spoke about the war, but he had shell shock. And uh, he had actually been discharged from the service after three years because he had it so bad. Never talked to me about it over. No, I don't think many of the veterans of, of World War II no, spoke. I never knew very My much. father didn't really speak about his the, the things he went through either. Yeah, I, was, I, I always wanted to know, but he didn't want to go near it. He wasn't the nicest guy at times to talk to about it, so we didn't touch it. Yeah. Um, but I found out a lot about it after he passed away. Mm -hmm. And I read his medical um, records from the uh, VA at that time, and he was... He was diagnosed with what we call post-traumatic stress injuries. Yeah. And it had a long-term effect. There's no question On him and on his family, on you. On me, absolutely. He was, he was a tough, I thought I grew up in a, 
actually, I thought I was growing up in a boot camp all the time. Our yeah. home was run like a boot camp, and uh, I had to work for my father in construction, and he was one tough guy in his business. And I'll tell you, he, he ran it tough, and he, but I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. I have to say, after I sorted out the, the how hard he was on people, um, he was he he knew his stuff, and uh, he really taught me to shoot for the highest quality effort. And I, I do to this day, and I, I attribute it to my father, and actually my 95-year-old mother who's mm -hmm. around today, yeah. she's that way uh, too. But uh, anyway, today you know it's interesting. I listened to our last week's broadcast, 90 uh, episode 90. I, I love the material that comes out of it, but I wonder at times if it's too much for people, if we're overwhelming them. It wouldn't be for me or you. In fact, there are many people that are listening that, that, that hang on every word, you know? Um, and I, would, I certainly would be one of them. Um, but we I, know all this. I mean, we're so familiar with the things that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be true for everyone out listening no. to us. And we don't want to just overwhelm people so that they don't come away with something of value. Well, we want them to be able to distill down the very important points yeah. to help them with their um, direction in life. Uh, this is a very key time, although our broadcasts have been going on a lot longer than the COVID-19 crisis. Um, we feel it's really relevant right now. Um, I've read some quotes from very old, from that article that you brought up. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things that we could learn and, and growing, and, and in spite of this, despite the scars, you know, I'll tell you the truth. I, I don't think you can grow unless you've been gone through the suffering and pain and been wounded. Um, Let me just for a moment say that the title of this episode, where this is number ninety-one, is "Can Suffering Be a Gift?" Right. That is our question today. It's a question, and of course, we have answers. We better. <laughs> we, we, have, we have answers. Something. <laughs> yeah, we have answers for now. And um, we're talking about a very fluid process. Of course, uh, I can't say that anybody, unless you're a really sick person, loves suffering. I don't. And yet there's a lot of suffering in my life. There's been a lot of suffering in the work. But we deal with um, helping people we call it trauma recovery, mm -hmm. and it, that's what we do. We help people through their suffering and pain. That means it affects us. Um, we bring our experiences there to it, um, and we and we have to. I got to say, we're pretty darn fulfilled in our work. I've been doing it. It'll be 50 years this month in September, um, and I tell you, if I were burned out and I didn't believe in what I was doing and I hadn't been fulfilled, this wouldn't have lasted this long. And my passion in some ways, although it's been morphed and matured, is just as, as much as it was when I started. In fact, it's certainly more well-grounded than I was when I started. So um, I love what we do. I care about my fellow man. Um, and, you know, I, I want to say this. In reading this article, something that I've forgotten, it's not that I didn't know about it, but we don't emphasize the contrast between what could happen to people if they don't follow and move toward a more positive course mm -hmm. when they're in difficulty. And um, this article brings up some, there's some very negative philosophers that went through some terrible times mm -hmm. and came out such, so cynical and bitter. And they talked about one, what is it, Jean Amaray? Yes, the man's name. And uh, just went through terrible torture. 
undeniably. In in uh, in Germany, uh, he was tortured by the During. Gestapo. He was in Auschwitz. He, yeah. he was it was terrible. There's no denying it. And when he came out, though, to tell this man um, that suffering could be a blessing would be the most insensitive thing you could do. And yet he took a turn for completely in a very negative way. And in fact, he committed suicide. Um, but what he talked about was there is no blessing in suffering. There is nothing good about it. And really, we're very weak people. And when we're broken and tortured and, and go through terrible pain, all we think about is our own bodies, our own suffering and pain, and how insignificant we really are. He was a very broken man who went the wrong way. You know, it was interesting because when I read that, I knew a lot of people that went through the Holocaust in my upbringing, um, my parents, friends, family, friends, whatever. I knew a lot of them were like, th like this guy. They were very bitter and very broken. And uh, you, knew, you knew a Holocaust survivor, um, at least in our, in our culture in New Jersey, you could tell that many times they were so negative and cynical and broken and not life positive at all. No. Um, and I, you know, my heart went out to them. I can remember some of them and their faces to this day. And it's not that I didn't feel their suffering and pain as a kid, but when they opened their mouths, the bitterness and the hatred consumed them. And they, you know, I didn't really totally grasp it conceptually at that time. But it really was a reflection on they were doing, they were destroying themselves with their bitterness and hatred. And they didn't take that step to turn it around. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I remember some of them were pretty intelligent, and yet I remember some were doing very menial work. And it, uh, far below what they could do, but yet that's all they sought. They didn't want to do anything too good anymore. And I remember a couple uh, from Poland, and I li they were nice people, but so broken. And I remember looking at her, her name was Tilly. And I remember looking at her, she always looked like she, her eyes were sunk in her head, and she always looked like she was crying. But I mean deeply embittered crying. She went through hell, so did her husband. Lost a lot of her family. But I remember I liked her, she, there was a, a broken sweetness toward me as a kid. But when she started talking, she just spewed bitterness and mm. hatred and mm. contempt and disdain. And um, it was a woman who just never turned her life around. I knew a lot of people like that. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was doing an internship in a hospital, I'll never forget this, um, some of the people in the, the day treatment program, inpatient and day treatment programs, were Holocaust survivors. And they were schizophrenic, some were psychotic, uh, some just were so depressed, they were psychotically depressed. And I remember I was, at one point I was put in charge of the, one of the day treat pros for a short time before I left there. And I remember my heart went out to these people and realizing, they look how sick they've made themselves. They can't function outside of a hospital program. Mm -hmm. And it was, heart, it, was, it was heartbreaking, and yet it was a state of being I was very familiar with from my upbringing. I had never seen, to be honest with you, until I worked in a psychiatric hospital. I'd never seen it to that extent, though, that these people, and this was 1972, I don't remember, 72, 73, and this is, what, 
40 years after they'd been in the concentration. They were still there. Yeah. In some ways, they were still there. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think what Phil Clay and what we're talking about in any way denies the horror that, um, that people go through, particularly, as you're saying, uh, the, the Holocaust, uh, the people, uh, service members in war, uh, people who've had tragic experiences the complete injustice or the complete tragedy that they've gone through. Right. And that the question is not that. The question that he poses is, is it possible after an experience like that to return to a life of value? You know... And I want to get to that, but okay. first... Are we on a break? But first... Okay. First, I'm going to say... Oh, okay, You've been listening to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson. Peter and I are talking today, we're re referencing an article uh, by Phil Clay, Can the Trauma of War Lead to Growth Despite the Scars, published in the New York Times. Just before our break, we were talking about uh, the, the essential question of um, can suffering ever be a gift? Uh, and Peter was sharing some memories, uh, some, some people that he knew that had gone through the Holocaust. And the wounds that they continued to carry decades later and which embittered their life. Um, and the cost that that was for them. And was that, what, are they condemned to that for the rest of their life? You know, they were, because that was their choice. But I think as a kid, it made a, a deep impact on me as far as knowing that I didn't want to live in that kind of embittered culture that held such deep grudges. Um, not that I knew an alternative yet, but I know it had a deep impression, on, made a deep impression on me. But you know, when we read this article, he, uh, what's his name, Phil, Phil Clay, brought up some um, <laughs> ancient philosophers and, and uh, folks that we've all, many of us have heard about, heard of, that um, went through some dramatic changes in their life to turn their lives around. And, um, I, 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 he was. I guess every, most people have heard about Saint Ignatius. Uh, he the was founder of the, the Jesuits. Jesuits, and um, I never knew this, but he had been a, a military person that it was um, mortally wounded in the battles. He was not a nice man. No. Uh, he was a. They call him. A, he was a punk. He was a troublemaker. Yeah. But he was. He really went through some terrible times, and his wounds were life-threatening. And through his long convalescence, he began to turn his life around. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was very, very good. I didn't know that. Um, but during the talking about that, they began to talk about um, trauma. And what most people, when they hear trauma, they see it as something to be avoided at right. all Pain, costs. Pain, trauma, adversity, it should be avoided. Exactly. Yeah, make every effort. Exactly. And uh, they t mentioned a guy, I've never heard of him, who was a, a philosopher, his name was Peter Singer. Certainly not a man that I would agree with. 
And he talks about it, our, our interest is in avoiding pain at all costs, and it's for the most important of human interests. I don't agree with that. And, you know, uh, he may be a smart guy, but that's not the philosophy that I come from. No. Um, you know, I, I look at it as um, pain and suffering, and we've talked about it before, it's, as a, it's an awful thing, and yet there's a blessing in it, somehow. Um, and it, as we, in this article, as we were talking about the, this guy, Peter Singer, and talking about the, um, the twist that go, they go through, they well, mentioned John McCain. Yes, that's right here too. Yeah, yeah. And, and his response to the pain that was in his life. Exactly. From his experience in Vietnam and the Hanoi Hilton. That's right. Now this is a man that was tortured, this is a man that went through hell and back. And who refused to leave without his marriage. That's right. But then I didn't know he, before all of this, he wasn't ex exactly a very impressive guy. Mm -hmm. I didn't I, didn't I think know. he says that about himself. Yeah, well he did, but you know what? Mm -hmm. Years later, I had heard this, and it was—I didn't quite grasp it at all, all the time. It's a hard saying to take. It really is. He said that he declared himself grateful to Vietnam for giving him a seriousness of purpose that observers of my early life had found difficult to detect. Yes, this is the kind of thing that happens when people go through difficulties. <coughs> He's one of the more well-known people. I do consider him a hero. Mm -hmm. What he went through, what he sacrificed for his, for his fellow um, inmates in that horrible uh, Hanoi Hilton. Um, and I looked up to, I know he, he suffered, he did he a hearing loss most of his life. Yeah, he made sacrifices. He made a lot of sacrifices. Yeah, but I, I liked him, but I know the man had been scarred for the rest of his life from what he went through and made the best of it and overcame and had such a deep sense of purpose right. that he's one of the few politicians, whether you agree with him, he was an honest man and yeah. he was always looking for the truth and integrity and honesty in politics, and which he, is so rare. So rare and he wasn't embittered. He wasn't didn't seem to be. Well, he, yeah, he got embittered, but it was more about people that played the political game and he just did not agree, didn't like it. It didn't mean that he just didn't agree with their politics. It was the kind of people they were, too, and are, mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. But he was a man that shot for the truth and looked for integrity. Can you imagine in that world looking for integrity it's, and decency yeah. and uh, a, a genuineness? We won't go there because we'd be here all no, day. No, no. <laughs> but, but John McCain made it his purpose in life. Yeah. And from a man who started with, as a very shallow, lightweight guy, after all the suffering and pain and torture he went through and hardship, this is what he came out to commit the rest of his life to. Mm -hmm. So that was a great, that was, to me that was a great example. Um, the see. other one that he had here was an was, uh, ancient Greek playwright. Aeschylus. Aeschylus. Who was a playwright and a military person. I didn't know he was military, but... He was a um, veteran of the Persian War. Yes. And um, he spoke about things that I... I I thought a lot about. Um, it's, he says there was a draw to there was a draw to people being looking to serve in the wars, mm -hmm. and um, it was you knew there was going to be trauma and pain and suffering, and there was something about it that drew people to it. Mm -hmm. And um, Aeschylus came up with this. Uh, it was a law, and he said this: "No wisdom comes without pain." Yeah. <laughs> so right. 
And he says, such wisdom gained has its scars, but it will always go very deeply. Um, and he's the one that what, what led us to the question, can suffering become a gift? Become a gift. Yeah. And I, I love these old, now that I'm reading them, some of them I'm familiar with, but I've forgotten. And this, this particular paper has brought some of these things back. Um, some of the people actually that they brought up, I studied in my master's in uh, social psychology and sociology, and I remember a couple of them I really thought a lot of. One was a guy named Peter Marin, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But he also mentioned a guy named Ernst Junger. Yes. He was a German uh, was, philosopher. And he, he was a soldier for Germany in World War One. Right. Yes. Now, and here's the great quote, right? Yeah, now this quote's great to us because I remember Steve, our producer, and I, um, he has a lot of uh, affinity for military, he's military, and he's got PTS. But we went to, we were invited, some of my friends who were in command, our, our command, invited us to one of the bud graduations, which was a very moving, to me it was very moving. And uh, what I really liked is most of the, a lot of the kids I met were from New Jersey and New York. <laughs> <laughs> and they called me sir. I like, loved like that. Like a home reunion. Yeah, I felt really good about it. Yes. Um, I told them they didn't have to call me sir. That was a waste of time. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but I remember one of the quotes in the man giving the, the graduation uh, speech. Commander Green. It was Commander Green, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, he said, um, adversity introduces a man to himself. That's right. And he was talking about the commitment that Navy SEALs have uh, to dealing with adversity and, and, be, and their, the character that it takes. They're trained. Mm -hmm. Now, not all SEALs are wonderful. We know it. I no. know it. No. Um, but I have to say, the, the people that we've met and known and helped did have character. Have some, been some outstanding individuals. And did some incredible yeah. work. And yeah. were quite, probably the most astute warriors I'd ever met with attitude tra training in place, which I haven't seen in all, all the uh, military, but certainly the SEALs put it, put it in them, mm -hmm. and I love that. But um, I'm, I'm reading about this guy, now I didn't know this, uh, Ernst Junger, yeah. and he came up with this saying, he says, tell me your relation to pain, and I'll tell you who you are. Now, this is a man that went through a lot that came to this. But he also was living in a time, um, and why I find this really relevant now, is uh, he lived in a time when he went through the war, he suffered a lot, um, developed, he came to this philosophy, but he also um, was, realize, he came to realize that his, the society he grew up in was filled with bourgeois values. In other words, yeah. everything was based on security, running from pain. Good times. Good times, and um, filled with the distractions of life. Mm -hmm. And when he came out of the wars, he was a different man, and he realized what his society had become and how ill-equipped they were yeah. to deal with hardship and difficulties and trauma. Well, when I read that, I'm thinking about what we're going through now and um, what our society, and probably societies all over the world, but probably ours primarily, is going through and we have been a society filled with values that had to do with security avoiding pain distraction mm -hmm. not dealing with the really core issues of life and that was what's that's what's been encouraged it's been very typical very similar to yep. ours 
And the security, of course, is based on money and, inf you know, what you have and, and kind of a, a, a selfishness yeah. about our fellow man. I think that what he saw in the culture that he, what he grew up in and what happened to it after the war is there's some analogies to what we're going through I now. I think direct analogies, I, really do. I agree with you. And that society had to go through some real changes after the war. Now, it's interesting, I didn't know this still, but he, he talked about the strength and the suffering that men would have to go through to build a new society, a stronger society. Well, who do you think came, what do you think came out of that one? Well, the, the, the article said there was some admiration for that attitude by the, the Nazi party. That's right. They took they on his took, philosophy. They did, but they took it on in a way that was, I don't know that it followed directly from it, his it didn't. ethos. They distorted that. They also yeah. did that about Christianity. They did it about a lot of things, but yeah. it was coming from a very evil, perverted yeah. place. I'm not, he wasn't, no. but that's certainly what they made out of it. Before, before we go on, go I just want to review for a moment because we've, we've quoted some people mm -hmm. who answered the question, can suffering be a gift, in some very specific ways. Uh, the first one that we talked about was uh, John McCain, mm -hmm. who said that it, mm -hmm. that it created a seriousness of purpose for him. Uh, we talked about the playwright Aeschylus, who said that wisdom comes from pain. Uh, and now Ernest Younger saying, and to me what I took from this was that there was a, a hardiness, a strength uh, of character and of will that came from him in his experience from the war. Yeah. So these were all positive. And also he said that, that, that self-sacrifice and the compassion for those around you is something else that came to him through his very difficult experiences. That's right. So and those were positive things that came from each of those men's experience. And it had to do with his selflessness, um, uh, not fleeing to safety. And, um, it, and, and that's what the bourgeois society did, prioritizing safety and security. Mm -hmm. um, and what he was, and, and it actually was fleeing away from self-sacrifice. Right. What we've done that, I have to say, we're suffering now because we're seeing the impact of that over a long period of time. We too, and our society have been doing the same thing, maybe to yeah. a greater extent than this. And people are suffering now a great deal um, because they're so ill-equipped to deal with a true crisis. Right. There's no question things are not the same. They probably never will be again. Things aren't as easy or convenient. Um, so we're going to take a break. Yeah. Okay, right. go for it. You've been listening to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 FM. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. I'm your host, Jenny Stevenson. Peter and I are answering, working on answering the question today, can suffering be a gift? And uh, we're working through an article by Phil Clay recently in the New York Times. We've talked uh, in the first two segments today about some of the um, some of the ways that suffering can be seen and experienced as negative, and can be experienced as a positive benefit to us as a gift, or even maybe a blessing. 
Um, in this last segment before the questions, I want to move on. I know we want to talk a little bit about um, some of the more recent approaches by uh, responses of treatment for PTS and some of the maybe, you know, the, the ways that things are, are seen that are maybe not as helpful. Right, and, we, and I think we can um, bring him more up to date because he did it in the article, and I thought he did it beautifully. Um, and some of it I've heard before. We've worked with the VA system, so we know some of this is absolutely... We do. We have experienced We've seen this. it, and we know it's true. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we, we talk about post-traumatic growth, too. And, we have, yes. And, yeah, and, and we, we know, believe in it. And we know that it can happen. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean transcending, though. Um, what people go through or being numb to what they've been through. That doesn't work. Um, if you're going to develop empathy and caring for your fellow man and come out of this, to be honest with you, you got to feel. you got to become sensitized to what you've been through. Nobody's saying that. And a, and a lot of times people think, well, you just numb out after trauma. Well, the truth is it should be a very temporary thing. Mm -hmm. It's people that we've seen and many that don't come out of it, right. and it affects their entire life. Um, so, looking at that, uh, there was an article, another article, uh, not a part of this article, written by a guy who was a Marine uh, officer, infantry officer. I was infantry too, but not an officer and not a Marine. Um, and he talked about, it was David Morris, and he wrote a book, and he talked about his treatment at the VA mm -hmm. um, after he came back from Iraq. And he definitely had post-traumatic stress injuries. And... Uh, he talked about what they, what he, the regimens, the therapeutic regimens that he was supposed to go through. Right. And um, as long as he stuck to those, that, that was the way the psychologist led him. And that's been our experience, too, that the, the, the process was very defined and this was the way it was done. Yes. And he said, and he talked, he wanted to talk about the experiences and value that he got out of all of this and the wisdom. He wanted wisdom. to explore that, yeah. And they wouldn't let him because it didn't fit the therapeutic regimen. Right. And I'll never forget, I've heard this more than once, that a senior psychologist there told him, and I've heard this before, told him it was actually an insult to those who are suffering to speak about possibilities Possibility of growth. Possibility of growing. And um, frankly, that's an unfortunate aberration of sensitivity yeah. because um, it, it takes away all hope and it's not being insensitive to those that are suffering it's giving them encouragement and hope that they can get through this to the other side um, and for, I have seen this about these regiments they get very rigid and you're expected to go through them and that's going to be the way you're going to get through post-traumatic stress I don't believe in that and I've certainly been doing this long enough to go, as much as I believe and am committed to the work we do and the way we do it, I know there's other things that work too. And after dealing with a lot of veterans, mm -hmm. um, I came to have to loosen up my parameters of how to work. And I learned an awful lot that there's plenty of good things out there. And I had to be open to hearing what they are and be, not be threatened by it and be territorial, but to incorporate it and to appreciate it. Um, he's talking about how he was treated and what it did to him. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that is, if he points it out or if, if the author points it out, is that the VA is working on a model, the medical community is working on a model based on science. 
um, that doesn't really take into account the spiritual and moral significance of the condition. I think generally speaking that's true. I think there's probably been modifications since we've been involved in it. I'm sure there have. Mm -hmm. But I, I agree. I mean, when it comes to the medical world, their answer is to, to cure this, to help with the symptoms of trauma. I don't disagree. I mean, that's good. But when it comes to understanding the bigger picture, the philosophy, the, the, the growth, the wisdom that can come through all of this, they're not open to that at all. If it involves working through pain, that's not what I see medical, the medical approach. Basically, it is we're here to help you with the symptoms that you're suffering from, and that's all we care about. And we're not really open to talking about how you can grow through all of this. Right. That's an unfortunate thing. It really is a very limited way of um, functioning. And I think this guy, uh, what's his name, David Morris, mm -hmm. he said it really limited, he, he struggled with it. But obviously, he was seeking the wisdom of what he, the, from the experiences of suffering and pain and loss that he went through in the war. Yeah. And he wanted to reap what he, something that he could carry forth um, from his experiences that would lead to something deeper and more purposeful. I agree with him all the way. And, and in the article, um, Phil Clay contrasted that approach to someone that you actually knew quite a while ago, Peter. I didn't know him. I Marin, studied him. Or you studied him. Yeah, I studied him. He had a different side, sight on uh, this. I always, liked, I always liked Peter Moran. And um, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't remember any of this till this article, but I always liked him. He had a different approach. But one of his approaches to post-traumatic stress and the effects of war that even appealed to me, and this is a long time ago, um, about, and I had come through trauma. I had been in the service, but my, ser my service wasn't the trauma. It was afterwards. But when I, when I remember what he said was, it's, it's going through the war is post-traumatic stress disorder. He didn't go with that. And mm -hmm. at the time, I wasn't. He was ahead of the curve. He was way ahead. And he, I did, something about it appealed to me. I saw myself outside the box, but I wasn't as intelligent and mature as Peter Moran. And I remember when he spoke about it, he says, post-traumatic stress disorder, or post-traumatic, it's not a neurosis. It's if you expose anybody to the horrors of war, they're going to come out traumatized. They're going to come out with these kinds of symptoms. And it's not right to label people with a psychiatric disorder because anyone is subjected to what these people go through would come out with these kinds of wounds and scars. And, uh, you know, when we dealt with the Navy SEALs at a couple of We heard of that. I was just going to say, we heard that so many times. From them. From them and from uh, the Brain at War conference that we went to. Uh, a couple of them. A couple of people there were, were very strong about that as well. That uh -huh. anyone, like you said, anyone who experienced what these, uh, these people these men and women experienced would react with this type of wound or carry it with them. Absolutely. And I, I appreciated it. When it came down to the application of it, though, um, I remember having some discussions with some of the generals, and, and I remember they were going to change the whole perspective of the military on post-traumatic stress disorder. And then I remember mentioning the SEALs we were working with, and, yeah. and they said, well, they're different. They're different. This is, or what we're doing doesn't apply to them. Yeah. And I'm looking at them and I go, really? What they're saying is it's not a disorder. 
if they've been subject, anybody who would be subjected to it will come out. And it's not, mm -hmm. it's an injury, like any other injury that needs to be worked with. Mm -hmm. So it takes the stigma off of the, uh, and the mental illness label off of these people. And it puts it in a more positive, constructive framework. I learned a lot working with Navy SEALs, I'll be honest with you. We did. We I changed a lot of how we work after that. They were generous in sharing with us what really mattered and what really would work for them. And that was part of that was part of your time when you were really um, transitioning your practice away from uh, the mental illness model psychotherapy to model. psychotherapy model to more of a coaching and mentoring right. model. Right, and uh, because sort of that was recovery. what they were. That was what would work for them. And you know what? It worked for me too. Yeah. Because I didn't want to pr create barriers between myself as a professional and the people I'm there to help. And I, I realized that these guys deserve more respect than that. And um, it definitely changed my whole approach to how I looked at things from there on out, and it, right up to this day. So I'm very grateful for that. For that. Um, so how do we transition this to what we've been talking about and what people are going through? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> They're going through a lot, okay? We speak about it, we've, we've talked it, we've referred to other uh, approaches to our, uh, finding resilience, courage, and strength through struggle and suffering and pain. Um, and uh, we've talked about the different stages that people go through, the very specific stages of what they go through. We certainly worked with people and we've seen the struggle they're having. Um, some much worse than what I see most of the others going through, although it's along the same lines. But what I'm seeing is it's on such a massive scale. Everyone is People being affected. People are, they're not, they don't have jobs, they're losing their businesses, they're financially strapped, they're terrified of the, um, of, of the disease, COVID-19. Now in California and other places, the fires are surrounding us all over and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are being evacuated um, or certainly put on, on warning to be evacuated. The fires are huge. I mean, it's, it's polluting the air all around us. We've had a lot of things, one thing on top of another. And folks aren't used to all that's hitting them now. We've talked about ex the people who work in the extraordinary reality. That includes us. <coughs> Firefighters, police, paramedics, yes. doctors, nurses on the front lines, um, caregivers on the front lines, probably more so than almost any because they're there on a constant, ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about what people who are living and working in this extraordinary reality have to go through in order to find the strength, the sense of purpose and resilience to continue in the work. It's hard work. Mm -hmm. A lot of people burn out. What does it look like? Not pleasant. A lot of anger, a lot of resentment, bitterness, fear, all of the things that we are now seeing on a massive level. Well, all people in there who, who live and work in this extraordinary reality of life, have to face that. But the first thing that they have to do is face themselves. Um, and that is the starting point for the changes on how to develop this resilience we're talking about. There is a way that we've developed in our work of paying attention to the body, which is the reservoir of all the energy and emotion and of the traumas that they go through, ours and others that we help. Um, so we know about it, and we know the changes it puts us through. We're not, again, I always want to reiterate, 
we may sound like the experts, but we can that pro, that position can change at any time, and people that we help can wind up helping us. Mm -hmm. um, we're not sitting on any throne of experience. Can't, we can't do that. It, we are human too. So these things that we do impact us as well. When we're helping others that are facing death, dying, sickness, crisis, and tragedies, um, we're of course we're affected. We're going. We want to help. We want to do everything we can. And the situations are overwhelming at times. That no matter what our tools are to help and what we want to do, it, nothing, sometimes it's just nothing, a lot of times, no matter what we do, mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. All we can do is make people comfortable, love them and care for them, um, help people through the terrible crises they're facing, um, and do the logistical help that they need. Um, those things we can do, but that forces us back on ourselves. We've got to look at ourselves feeling pretty inadequate at times and very limited. And, and yet, I would say, uh, as we're just about to go to a break, I would say that the people who have chosen to be a first responder as their life's calling would answer the question, can suffering be a gift? Mostly in the positive. They are seeing some value for themselves and others in the sacrifice that they make and the hard times they go through to do their job. Some of them don't. Some of them burn out say, and they're if gone. They're, if they're, if they're, but the yeah. ones who are who are thriving in the in the profession are the ones who are willing to embrace them, their own limitations and the pain that they go through to do their job. When you say thriving, you don't mean without pain or suffering. Not without pain or suffering. You mean resilience. Right. And that they can find a positive perspective after they deal with themselves emotionally and physically and do that first, then they can come back with a renewed passion and vigor to help others. That's right. Yeah, okay. You've been listening to the Survivor's Guide to Life on KPCA Petaluma 103.3 of FM. We'll be back with questions after a short break. I'm Jenny Stevenson. Welcome back to the Survivor's Guide to Life. And we are in our last segment of our podcast today, and this is where I get to put Peter on the spot and ask him some questions. Peter, I felt on the spot this whole... <laughs> well, then maybe I'm doing my job. No, I don't know. No, I think you're doing, I think you're doing great. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Good. Uh, and I think I think we've, we've really done some good given some good messages let out us today. Know. Let if us we know. Have, okay, we want to hear All from right. you. If we've blown it, let me know. So my first question takes a little moment to explain, but we used as an example uh, today, we talked about uh, people who, or even uh, professionals, clinical professionals, who feel that at times mm -hmm. it's unfair or too much to ask to uh, think that someone who's gone through a horrific experience could actually grow from that post-traumatic growth is possible. And you have talked in the past about something that you call misguided compassion. How would you describe some of what's going on in these scenarios in terms of misguided compassion? Uh, I know what I mean by misguided compassion. Yeah, so maybe start there. What is misguided compassion? What is this kind of compassion? Mm -hmm. well, Would you say that these, these professionals might be thinking they're acting in compassion 
in saying it's too much to expect that you could come through this and and grow from yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for the. <laughs> yeah, I need to explain more. <laughs> Thank you. I need that. Um, I think they're mis definitely uh, misguided, and um, but at the same time, I know they're making an attempt to be sensitive. Um, I know that, but unfortunately, these people are coming with a very limited perspective, and their sensitivity isn't real sensitivity at all. There is a timing factor that we've seen in dealing with people who deal with the effects of trauma, um, that at times you can't really talk about growth and hope. you got to help them with the logistics of just getting through one day at a time. And I've seen misguided compassion in many different ways. I, the one that really has struck, I guess it comes to mind the most, but I've seen it, where um, someone has lost a loved one through whether it's been a, tra a crisis, a tragedy, or a natural death or whatever. And I've seen people, particularly with a certain sense of distorted understanding of spirituality, um, come up to them and say, you shouldn't have to feel any sadness or grief or pain because you know he's in heaven now and he's doing wonderful. And I just about, when I hear that, I just about want to go through the floor. Because at that time, the folks that are grieving need to be supported for and, and given a, a, a deep sense of being okay to go through the grieving process. Not to talk about, oh, there's going to be tremendous growth, he's going to be in heaven, you're going to see him again someday, don't worry about it, everything's wonderful, and he's doing fine. That is real and sensitive, and that's misguided too. Mm -hmm. um, I have seen that. So I think when we, it takes a sensitivity, it really does. When to talk about hope, when, it, when to talk about growth that can come through these difficulties. You know, I've one, I'm one of these people that I'm generally a pretty positive person in spite of very difficult circumstances that I've been through myself. I'm going through it again with my wife and my mother. I adore my wife of almost, God, we've been together 47 years. And I think about it, what it's like. I have her close to me at all times. And I make sure she's comforted. And, and then I think to myself, this is just, this is unbearable. I'm, I'm watching my wife die every day. And yet, and I, she's in the other room and I go in many times during the night to check in on her. She's not in pain, she's not suffering. But it's an unbearable thing if I really think about it, to ask anybody to do this would be, that's a lot. I'm one of the people that's the way I want it. But the sensitivity issue here is coming through a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. Do I have my moments where I can't find hope? I can't find a, a positive perspective because I feel so much emotional pain. But what I do know is, I have been through these things so many times, not with my wife, but with others. The thing that I do know deep down, there is something positive and purposeful in all of this. And there is a power greater than me. And it takes me through things that most people wouldn't want to go through or couldn't, or don't choose to. I, on the other hand, have a passion for helping, to get involved. Um, to be, not to run away from the real difficulties. But I will say, I go through my hard times too, and if somebody came up to me and said, oh, chin up, everything's gonna be fine, she's gonna be in heaven and you're gonna, I wouldn't wanna hear that. 
And yet there's something deeper within me that goes, I know that's all true. So I want to follow up with a very related question, which is if, if to be insensitive the way you're talking, like everything will work out fine when someone is really hurting, what, and that's misguided compassion, what is what you would call true empathy? What is it that someone really does need that will help them move through to, to the next part of their life? It's an easy answer, acceptance, true acceptance. And that means we have to have the capacity to come alongside someone, our fellow man, and share their humanity and their human condition in some ways right along with them. It, it doesn't mean pumping them up. It means I'm right here with you and I get it. And I've been there, I'm there, and I, I hear what you're going through and I'm anything you need, I'm right here for you. It's not making them try to feel better. It's not trying to uh, take them out of it, although sometimes it does help. But it's acceptance of the human condition. What we're talking about is part of the human condition. It's just the part that everybody tries to avoid. When you have empathy, like we're talking about, you don't avoid. In fact, you relate. And you know how. Because you've been through it yourself. You know what to say. You know how to feel. And there isn't this awkwardness. There's an acceptance. I, I had an experience this weekend, and I, I, enjoy, I have a great number of uh, caregiver professionals of all kinds that work at our institute. Every, everyone is an angel. Um, one of them, Maritha, is Fijian, and I love her. We all love her. Mm, yes. Um, but she's got a husband that was a professional rugby player, big hulking guy. Peter is his name. Peter. Another Peter. Peter. Peter we K. love Peter. There's Peter B. and Peter K. And Peter is a wonderful guy. He's one of the few people I can see coming in in that room with my, with, with my wife and all of us. He is completely comfortable mm -hmm. being in my wife's presence and talks to her, relates, and works around her. He is a kind of person that not only is he comfortable, it's, it's a comforting presence without his imposing himself on anyone. Um, that's the kind of thing he's got a, a deep sense of empathy, whether it's personal or cultural, could be both, but that's what I like, and that's what I appreciate. I'm like that, but I really appreciate other, we at our place, let's be honest, everybody's like that. But I sat with him in the, in the room, he was helping me with fix something in Lynn's room. It was, it, well, I wouldn't say effortless, it was just so accepting and comforting and comfortable. I'll never forget, and the way Lynn is, she doesn't talk, she can't see, and yet we talked to her. We, and, and we're working all around her and, and fixing some things in the room and he's helping and, and he says, hi, Lynn, I'm here. And he just talks like mm -hmm. very comfortably comforting mm -hmm. and regular and sweet mm -hmm. and empathetic. And he also has a heart. I mean, he can go to the deeper places of pain, but Peter is one of those people that can do it. I can do it. That's the kind of empathy that is filled with acceptance of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And it's a gift to those that are suffering and in pain. Very much so. Very much so. I'm going to close with my last question. And I hope that I can make this one a little bit clearer. Uh, and this one I want to preface by saying I mean absolutely no criticism. But I wanted to ask you... Of, criticism of me? Go ahead. Of, I, no, of, of the situation for people who 
find themselves uh, like the man that we were talking about, Jean Amory, who felt uh, devastated by the horrors he went through and essentially lost hope in life and basically went into a kind of a collapse. And what, what is the risk from going into collapse? What the misguided compassion that I guess this is the best this person can do? Um, collapse means what? It means turning negative about life. It means instead of our normal need and love of our fellow man and the need to communicate and, and to see our fellow man with a, 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 an acceptance, a caring way, um, wanting to be around our fellow man. Now, I'm, I know we all have our moments when we don't, I get that. But generally speaking, it's not looking at our fellow man with suspicion and distrust and life in a very negative way. When people get to the point that you're talking about, they're very less negative, they don't like their fellow man, they're suspicious, they avoid contact, they're paranoid, um, and very negating of life. And they basically go into a self-destruction. Um, and there can be varying degrees of this. Yes, you know, yeah. all of us, many of us can go into some kind of a collapse that we then need to pull ourselves out. Well, of. that's the key. There's, there's, there's the resilience. We all go through this. When they describe Jean Marie, it's like, who couldn't understand the pain that man experienced? Yeah. And yet, there's another man, Victor Frankl, who went through the same kinds of horrors, who came out and spoke about, we have the choice of how we want to respond. He went through very similar horrible, torturous experiences and loss, and he came out with a much more hopeful and positive outlook on life. Was he one of these people that was ethereal and out there and out to, which I don't like, of course. Not at all. Not at all. He came out with a very down-to-earth outlook that had hope to it and spoke about the purpose of going through all this. And we can't always control what happens to us and what, what, what things come down on us. We have one thing, though, that we always can be in control of and in charge of. That's our choice of responses. When I, I remember him in my master's program, too, and he left a deep impression on me. So he went through the same kind of things as Gina Marais. Mm -hmm. Gina Marais killed himself, eventually, and he was considered a, a, a philosopher, a known philosopher. I never heard of him, but I just read about it. Well, Viktor Frankl wrote a number of books on how to find happiness and joy through struggle, suffering, and pain, just like we do. And he created a, uh, a, a program that helped many, many people to see the things and learn the things that he learned. And he was terrific. So here you go, similar circumstances, but much different reactions. Mm -hmm. Our job, the way we see it, is people come to us with post-traumatic stress, and it can be an ongoing, long-term help. Um, unfortunately, many times, they have a, a general suspicion and remove themselves from their fellow man. Um, they don't look with love on their fellow man at all or even want to be involved. They're very uncomfortable. Um, they don't make other people feel comfortable because they're really life negative. They're scared. Mm -hmm. That's always part of it. But the fear has turned into a life negative approach and outlook on life. Yeah, we don't and want that's, to. That's, 
not what where we are. No not way. at all. And I'm no gonna way. have to we're out of time. That's unfortunately. Good. That's good. So, That's good. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, it's my turn to say that the Survivor's Guide to Life is made possible through a grant from Sonoma Coast Trauma Treatment, a 501c3 uh, public charity. And if we have been a benefit to you, I hope you will consider making a donation to help support SCTT and what we're doing. They're at www.sctraumatreatment.org. There's a way to donate through the website. Uh, want to give you one of our little books that Steve designed. This has principles that Peter has used for many years to help get through the very difficult times, things to remember, hang on to, and live. If you email me at jenny at bernsteininstitute.com, we'll be very happy to send you a copy. Uh, our podcast is on our website, thesurvivorsguidetolife.com. Our video version is on our YouTube channel. We're on all the podcast outlets. Please like, share, Send us feedback. We would love to hear from you, uh, your questions, comments, suggestions, anything like that. Peter and I can be reached at 707-781-3335. Have I forgotten anything? Email. Oh, my email. Again, jenny at bernsteininstitute.com. And thank you for joining us. We look forward to next time. And hang in there. Yep.